face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the School of Alumni Network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on March 18, 2021. My name is Evan Papp and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Joining me is Dr. Chloe Schwenke, who is an international development ethicist, practitioner, human rights activist, researcher, and educator. Her career is focused on gender equality and social inclusion, LGBTQ plus governance, peace building, and on human rights. Chloe is the president and founder of the Center for Values and International Development, and she served as a political appointee at USAID under the Obama administration, as senior advisor on democracy, human rights, and governance in Sub-Saharan Africa, and on LGBTQ issues. She currently serves as an adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland College Park. Chloe, great to see you. Wonderful to be here, and we go way back, so it's nice to be connected again. Absolutely, you gave me my first start in USAID, so I am forever in gratitude for that. And I wanna begin by talking about some of your first international development experiences in post-apartheid South Africa and how you got interested in development ethics and what development ethics is. Yeah, that's, a, that's the appropriate place to start because before that I'd been, an, you know, I'd basically been an architect working in East Africa and not thinking about international development ethics whatsoever, although indirectly, um, that was my first face-to-face -face with poverty. When I got to South Africa, however, it was a different context. I was there as a town and regional planner. Uh, it was just after Nelson Mandela came to power. There was a buzz in the air. It was, it was tangible. I mean, this was a real experiment. It was absolutely an experiment. Can we completely change a sweeping paradigm for an entire country and still hold it all together? And then, you know, for me to be trying to be a facilitator of basically undoing the spatial side of apartheid, working with mostly very marginalized people, but the majority people, the Af Black South Africans, in reconstructing how land should be allocated, resources be done, governance be structured, et cetera, was an incredible privilege, but also an incredible education. I think, you know, there's so many ways that I could could talk about that I, as a planner, certainly. But I think first, I just wanted to talk about a couple of people that really, to me, characterize what was going on there right then. Uh, one was a dear friend of mine named Dan Smith. Dan was a professor at University of Natal. He'd been a friend of mine in Oregon before. He'd come across to do some studies there uh, at the University of Oregon when I lived there. Uh, and then he was back in South Africa. Dan Smith was an Afrikaner. He was an Afrikaans man. He spoke obviously Afrikaans, but he also spoke perfect English. 
Um, he was also, you know, the Afrikaners are often the vilified ones for the whole apartheid era, because that's basically where it had its heart, uh, was within the Afrikaans population. But Dan was on the opposition. He was one of the, the people fighting throughout the years of struggle for uh, a racially equitable, fair and free South Africa at extraordinary risk to himself and his wife and family. Um, he was right there on the front lines of the struggle and was, was respected for that. What was so interesting to me to see in my time living in Durban, I was there for three years from 95 to 98, was how embraced he was by the by all the people there. His his reputation had you know basically st stood him in good stead and deservedly so. He had earned his place in the new South Africa. It did not matter what color or ethnicity he was. He has a role to play, and he still is playing that role. Though he now is in Cape Town. But you know that South Africa could come around so much to embrace a white man in this case was astounding to me. I, I expected there to be a sense of retribution and vengeance and you know getting even. That wasn't there. Um, I guess the other person I, I think really characterized it for me was a gentleman that worked for me in my, I had a planning firm called Siakana, which is a Zulu word meaning we're working together in harmony basically. Um, Tulani and Timbu worked for me in Siakana, and we had a, you know, we went up to the Ministry of Constitutional Affairs in Pretoria for a business trip, and we were walking down the street. You know, some of the best things happen when you're just walking down the street. And Tulani had this amazing smile on his face. He, he wasn't usually given to huge, broad smiles, but there he was, there we were walking side by side, and I just finally I said, okay, Tulani, what's the big smile about? He says, I can, this is my sidewalk now. I can walk on this sidewalk. I said, what does that mean? He said, until Man you know, Mandela was freed, black South Africans were not allowed to walk on the sidewalk, and particularly if a white person was there. He said, this is my sidewalk now. And just you know, seeing that ownership, that pride in something as simple but necessary as a sidewalk was a really strong symbol to me that this was a really different place. Um, I learned so much in my time there. I learned so much by seeing how South Africans are really good at participatory work. They know how to engage. They know how to lift their voices. Uh, with one exception, <laughs> I did a regional development plan. I facilitated it. I was in charge of it for the government of South Africa, but for the Zulu region, the Zulu Regional Council, which is a rural area outside of Durban, where essentially the heartland of the Zulu nation is. You can imagine from the history and, and just the, the culture that we know about, this is a very, very patriarchal society. This is a warrior culture. This is the culture that stood up to British colonialists at great, great cost to them in terms of war casualties, uh, but they were, valiant and ferocious warriors. But what about the women? <laughs> what about the women? I mean, it's still a very patriarchal culture. The king that just recently died, uh, King Zolotwini, had five or more wives and multiple, multiple children. Uh, this is a man's culture through and through. So we had a, you know, a couple of participatory workshops, which we did in all of our work there. And I noticed a couple of things. First of all, there wasn't a single woman in any of these workshops. And secondly, the older men were sitting in the front, the younger men in the back, and only the older men spoke. 
So there was a real hierarchical sense of who's entitled to speak in these, these you know, gatherings. So I made the sort of naive American question and saying, I want to talk to the women. <laughs> and they looked horrified. They said, women don't, don't speak in our culture. And I said, they need to speak. I, you know, I cannot do my job without hearing from half of your population. They said, well, you'd need to ask the king to get that done. I asked the king. The king said, no. I asked the king again. The king said, no. I went to the king five times before he got so tired of this irritating American that he said, have your damn women's workshop. To this day, it's the best one day workshop of my life. Partly because women had this so bottled up inside of them. It, this was nothing revolutionary or radical. This was salt of the earth kind of stuff about where the water springs are, where the firewood is, how do you take care of children, etc. But the empowerment written on their faces, the fact that somebody wanted to hear their voices, it was just, it was so uplifting. It was absolutely moving more than any sort of experience I had in South Africa. Um, and we incorporated what they said. I mean, it became very central to the, the Zulu regional development plan. And to this day, I mean, women are, have really, because of that plan to some in small measure, but mostly because of their intrepid nature, women are playing a much bigger role now in governance of that. So yeah, it was really an amazing experience at so many levels. Yeah, my experience in Africa was as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia from 2004 to 2007. And I feel that I took more away from it than I actually gave. I learned so much in the process. And I also have this pretty bad experience where I was involved as implementing a school between two villages. And I actually created conflict inadvertently uh, to try to figure out how to engage people, but not necessarily going through the, the customs and traditions and, and power systems. And I, and I learned a lot and an extremely humbling experience as well. And uh, that tension of coming from the outside in while also trying to create pathways of agency is, is one of the greatest balances. And it's such an interplay from, from the outsider who's trying to create some, some sense of communication and truth with, with the people on the ground who are ultimately, you're trying, they're, they're the owners of their, their own agency and their own future. So that kind of brings me, I guess, into how you got into ethics as well. Well, I mean, you know, the workshops that I did have with, you know, many of the projects there, they weren't particularly interested in the technology. They didn't want to know about the infrastructure or the finance or the economics or the, even the environment. You know, all the stuff that I was trained in as a planner was not what they wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about their dignity. They wanted to know that the new government, their local government, would actually respond to them as dignified human beings, that they would be valued and that their voices would be heard. It was not something I'd ever been taught to engage in and I lacked the moral vocabulary, but I sorely missed it. I really thought this is a huge failing and it's such an important aspect to, to, to deal with. So, I mean, that really is what propelled me to leave South Africa, come back and get my PhD in basically in, in public policy, but really in philosophy and ethics and putting those two together. So what is the interaction between ethics and public policy? 
Well, it's funny you should ask that. I was just earlier today having, uh, I was in a, a workshop with a Rwandan professor who's now teaching in Ohio at the College of Worcester, talking about the Rwandan genocide. And he made a comment that just blew me away. He said, well, evil is not an academic term, so we can't really talk about evil. <laughs> and I stopped him in his tracks and I said, come on, Fiacre, this is, if there's ever a time when we actually need in an academic setting or any setting to talk about evil, it's in the context of the Rwanda genocide. Evil in my class <laughs> is definitely an academic term. And that's kind of where ethics fits into public policy is it brings flesh and blood human beings into the policy dialogue. Not us as markers on a regression analysis, not us under the presumption of self-interested human beings, but people who make decisions for lots of complex reasons, people who are moved to sacrifice their self-interest at many times, people who care, who show compassion, who exercise altruism, who exercise generosity, you know, the full character, the full profile of, of humanity in public policy where it belongs <clears throat> is the work of ethics. Ethics is a challenging word because it's been taken over by the lawyers. <laughs> and when you say ethics, people think you're talking about compliance with regulations, which is important, but I'm talking about moral ethics. I'm talking about morality in a structured <clears throat> analytical way. How do we really think about morality and put it into public policy in a way that's measurable and meaningful and persuasive? And that's really what, and humanizing more than anything, that's really what ethics is in public policy to do. So the evaluation of it is oftentimes where people are saying, well, how do you, how do you monetize it? How do you commodify it? How do you, how do you understand the impact of putting this ethical framework into the implementation of the policy? And, and that I, I, I found international development to be lacking in monitoring and evaluation, oftentimes being slapped on at the very end and if you actually asked a lot of the so-called targeted beneficiaries, they are not very satisfied with uh, what the program intended to achieve because it wasn't really thought of at the beginning. But how, how do you bridge that gap from the ethics part to the, the actual implementation of, of a policy or a program? Well, just a comment before I answer that, and that is that ethicists work in so many other fields, law, medicine, science, education, all kinds of fields where ethicists are a regular part of the process, and they do analysis, monitoring, and evaluation as a regular part of what they do. But you're absolutely right. In international relief and development, it's unheard of to have an ethicist on the team. I've, you know, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I've never once, not even once, seen an ethicist involved in any project by any major donor, never. <laughs> and this, this is life and death stuff. This is, you know, this is allocation of remarkably scarce resources. This is all about human suffering. This is all about freedom and opportunity. Where is the moral voice? Where is the structured moral voice? Where is the way to bring that into our decision-making? It is absent. I mean, that's really why I set up the center, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, is to try to bridge that gap. But, you know, the challenge right now is to, to claim that space, to say, yeah, we can measure it. Not only can we measure it by looking at just the traditional way in which human rights have been abused, which is a pretty dismal categorization, 
important, but it's you know a, a dismal catalog. I'll put it that way, to look at and and you know draw up the long, long, everlasting list of how many human rights abuses have been abused and what horrific consequences there have been. I'm more interested in the human rights side and looking at, the, or I'm equally interested in looking at the promotion of human rights. How how well did this project promote? a mindset and a set of attitudes around the importance of the universal human dignity, every person's dignity, and the rights that make that operationalized. How do we achieve that dignity, that respect for dignity? We achieve it through honoring those human rights. But human rights is only one moral framework. We have Kantian frameworks, we have John Rawls, we have um, utilitarianism is a moral framework. I mean, there are many things that we can learn from utilitarianism. It's got huge problems as well. But there's, you know, we've got the ethics of care, looking at care and compassion and, and the reaction of people to being confronted with suffering. We have the capability approach of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, which is perhaps arguably the most dynamic of all of the ones I mentioned there for doing very gritty analysis about what a human being ought to be and can be, what freedoms they have, what capabilities are able to develop, you know, what functionings they're able to achieve to really create a truly human life. Every bit of that is measurable, every single bit of that, but you rarely see it sometimes, but rarely see it being carried out. And I would love to see that changed. And as a planner, I, I think it is so important to have that horizon view of what you're trying to achieve, which it is ultimately freedom and agency for the individual and the community and the culture. And from starting from that future, future vision and horizon where you want to go to, that's how you organize the present. And through that ethical approach, it does bring in the framework and the considerations and the questions that can get you closer to the ideal, even if you never fully achieve it. Well, yeah, and that's also a leadership challenge. I think until we get leadership and donor agencies who set the terms of reference for projects to ask the questions about what are the ethical premises here? You know, how do we grade the success of this project in terms of its ethical awareness, sensitivity, accomplishments, you know, who was involved in decision making, all of those critical aspects which we're starting to discover in, in the context of gender equality and equity work. I mean, that's, that's the one bright spark right now. It's no longer the boutique little projects that it used to be 30 years ago. There is some really significant ethical accomplishments happening right now, moral accomplishments on gender equality and equity. Um, we need to do that across all sectors of relief and development. So turning to your time in the Obama administration, could you talk about your experience as a political appointee? And you're one of the few, if uh, I think there were only a couple transgender women in the federal bureaucracy of as a political appointee at that time. Uh, could you talk about that experience as well? Yeah, there were three transgender people, one transgender man, Dylan Orr, who was at the Department of Labor, and Amanda Simpson, who was originally at the Department of, um, of what was she, Commerce, but she moved to this um, Pentagon ultimately. Um, so the three of us were really all that there was, but when I say all that there was, it, there had never been before. There had never been transgender political appointees before, and there haven't been since until Rachel Levine just got, a, you know, at least through the committee, she's not been formally appro appoint, approved by, by the Biden administration yet, or by the Senate. 
but I mean, nothing under Trump for sure. Um, so we were the three, we were all there was. And as political appointees, we were expected, you know, we were, we were at our various different ministries or departments. We were expected to report to the White House. I mean, that's what political appointees do. In our very first meeting at the White House, <laughs> we thought we'd be meeting with some sort of mid-level functionaries. We were meeting with really senior people at the White House, really senior people. And so Amanda, Dylan, and I just looked at each other and thought, oh my God, what are we going to say? It, it, was, it was frankly terrifying. You know, there we were. <laughs> and we sat down with these people and they looked at us and we looked at them and they said, tell us what can we do for you? Whoa. <laughs> tell us what can we do for you? I mean, it completely set the, the tone for the entire time I worked there as a political appointee, the administration under President Obama and Vice President Biden was committed to really doing something meaningful for LGBTI people generally, but for transgender gender people specifically in this case. And they meant that question. In fact, every single month we went there, they reported out to us what they'd done in the last month after what they'd heard us say before. Obviously, we had to report to them as well. But whoa, what a great relationship. What a real reciprocal relationship of commitment and of care. So that completely blew me away. And, you know, I was just so impressed by the fact that, you know, they would, would frame it that way. I guess I was also, I don't know what the right word is, overwhelmed a little bit or in awe. Uh, and frankly, a little terrified. I was basically put to the task of, going out and explaining to USAID mission staff, particularly the Foreign Service Nationals and the Embassy Foreign Service National staff at every embassy and USAID office in Africa, which was my biggest sort of beat, all about the presidential memorandum that Obama did on December 6th of 2001. That was the international initiative to advance the human rights of LGBTI people, which was you know, in the international context. Nothing like that had ever happened before. No American president, no international leader had said LGBT rights are central to our, to, as a global challenge. President Obama said that. So I had a pretty strong person backing me up, but I was the face. I mean, I was the transgender woman standing in front of African, uh, you know, American employees, but of African nationality who were coming from cultures that were not friendly to LGBTI, to put it bluntly, many of them were incredibly hostile to people like me. And I had to make it real. I had to find the way to communicate that, you know, this is important to us as a country, but mostly I had to communicate that I'm me, I'm a human being, you know, just, just you, if you, there's nothing else that you do out of this talk we have, just look at me. Just see me as a human being. I'm just another woman. There's nothing scary about me. There's nothing evil about me. There's nothing wicked or sinful or anything like that. I'm just a woman who happened to get here in a somewhat different way. But this is what this whole presidential memorandum is about, humanity, human dignity. We've all got it. We all need to respect it in each other. That, that's it. I mean, it's not that hard. It was still hard though for them. And there were a couple of times, Uganda in particular, where it was, it was particularly acrimonious and difficult. But, you know, it happens. So we made, we made the discourse begin. 
uh, by just putting ourselves out there. And many of my colleagues at USA were really big parts of this. In fact, I, that's another comment. I'm just so impressed by how hardworking people at USAID and the government generally are. You know, you were one of them. Uh, people work their butts off there. They work really hard. They're committed. They're, they're capable. They're professional. And I don't think they get the sort of kudos that they deserve. So you recently co-authored an article with the Center for American Progress titled Transforming U.S. Foreign Policy to Ensure Dignity and Rights for LGBTI People. Could you talk about what this article is about and what you're hoping to achieve with it? Well, I think it's a, it's a sense of exasperation is what gave rise to it. You know, I'm, I've stayed very active in the LGBTI advocacy space and with colleagues of mine who I've gotten to know over the years, we saw the election of, of you know, Biden and Harris as an incredible opportunity to surface again something that started under Obama but needed to go much further, but also to, to really acknowledge and try to begin to undo some profound damage that to human rights, not just LGBTI human rights or the human rights of LGBTI people to put it more accurately, but human rights full stop under the Trump administration who actually tried to redefine and minimize the, the significance of human rights at the highest level. I'm talking about Secretary of State Pompeo trying to essentially redefine human rights in a really pernicious way. Um, we were, we were all moved by the sense of, of, of necessity to try to begin that undoing project, to start to begin to move us back towards even beginning to where we were at before, and then to further that even you know, more, to make that agenda, and it is an agenda, it's a human rights agenda, it's a human dignity agenda, and the entire report, which is a policy document intended to get to decision makers early on in the, the Biden-Harris administration to basically get them thinking about human dignity in the context of LGBTI people internationally. And we had, I don't know, there was just so much passion and commitment and earnestness and I don't know, just there, there, present, you know, people being present to the situation amongst the, the many of us that worked on this document. And the support of the Atlantic Council and the Center for American Progress, I mean, it all came together really well. There's so much more to do, but it just felt like this is something we can do right now. We can, we can make the argument and that's what we do. We're asking for leadership. We're, in a sense, we're demanding leadership through that policy document. And we still have work to do to get it out to the Hill and we'll continue to do that, but it's our best bringing together of an agenda that we think would actually do something about marginalization, would really do something about human dignity, it would really start us back to a place of leadership in international affairs in the context of dealing with human rights and marginalization. And speaking of leadership, you are the founder and president of the Center for Values in International Development. Uh, could you talk about what it's about and its mission? Well, you know, I, this has been, as I already told you, from South Africa to now. I'm talking from 95 till now. Um, this has been my passion. This is my central interest and concern is the moral space in international development. The fact that it is all about human dignity and respecting that dignity in a way that transcends boundaries. 
Trouble is, that's not how other people think. That's not what the development industry is about. The development industry, and it is an industry in this country and, and abroad, is built around a political economy model that has value for sure and, and lots of important insights, but it does not provide all the answers. And when I try to move people towards any kind of discourse that involves humanity in the moral sense, they, I get blank looks and I've got, I got tired of getting blank looks. I got really tired. When I was at USAID, I tried very hard to get USAID to do a policy in international development ethics and I could not get a, a, you know, enough support and I tried really hard. I got them to agree to do a white, to let me do a white paper on, at least on, on the basics about values and development. Um, and, you know, USAID had heard me talk about that before I'd even become a political appointee. So I did, I convened a number of focus groups. And what was so moving to me, and I won't ever forget it, is in one of those focus groups, and these were all of USA permanent employees, many of whom had been there 30 plus years, is one gentleman who started to cry. I mean, he's a gruff kind of character, but I had asked the, the focus group, tell me about what your personal mission is that got you into doing development work. That was my question. And this gentleman just basically said through his tears that he's been waiting 30 years for somebody to ask him that question. It's never talked about at USAID. And this is the core driver of why people, most people I would argue, do development and relief work is because they care because they really have moral values that are associated with trying to remedy or at least facilitate the overcoming of poverty and helping to create opportunities and freedoms around the world. Anyway, I just got to a place in my career where, you know, doing consulting work was no longer getting me where I wanted to go. You can only write so many proposals for other people. I just said, I'm going to bite the bullet and I'm going to set up my own organization. And the Center for Values and International Development came from that sense of it's time. And it wasn't hard to get together a really amazing board. And then a senior development, senior advisory council to support us. And we put it all together. I mean, it's an exercise in idealism. It is absolutely an exercise in idealism. I don't know if we're going to be ultimately successful. We're getting lots of invitations to come and speak to make presentations to, you know, virtual now on Zoom to sometimes hundreds of people. But how you translate that into action, into actual tangible action, when donors aren't asking for the moral dimensions of, of international relief and development is, is putting you know, everybody in a tough spot. So we're talking to the donors too, and we're talking to the foundations, we're talking to everybody right now, which we do for free. <laughs> but you know, we really do want to change the paradigm. And we're being as, as boldly ambitious as that to say, it's time, it's time for all of us to have the conversation about humanity and about human dignity specifically. And to do that in a pragmatic, professional, measurable, you know, sensible, operationable way, which is what ethicists do. This is not fluff. This is not rhetoric. This is, this is stuff that can and ought to be done. And it should be brought up at the very beginning of the process, having worked on programs and helped do some of the designs for programs. And it's so often everything from communicating about the program 
monitoring and valuing the evaluating the program it, it's an afterthought oftentimes it's all about just getting that money start it, just get it moving as quickly as possible but to take that step back and really think about some of the ethical concerns and i think make it much more effective ultimately in achieving the the development objectives so yeah so for the School of Public Policy, you are quoted as writing, there are 18 state legislators in the US right now actively pursuing legislation that negatively targets people like me. This is not theoretical, this is absolutely real. Transgender Americans are fighting a fight for our survival. So could you talk about the tension in being a foreign policy practitioner advocating for policies that we are still fighting to implement in the US? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying those tensions are real. They're very real. And, you know, for anybody who's trans right now or non-binary, um, we have whole states, whole state legislatures, not whole states, but state legislatures trying right now to stand in the way of our human dignity. Quite bluntly, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to target us. And some of them are succeeding. We'll see whether that stands the test of time in the courts. But why? Why am I so threatening? Why are people like me such a threat? So that's, you know, that's an attention in my own backyard, as it were, here in the United States. We're, we're not the exemplar in respecting LGBTI rights and particularly trans and non-binary people's rights. We're just not even beginning to be there right now. But, you know, two things I think are worth noting, one of which is that in development doesn't happen over there. Development is everywhere. There's no sort of border on development. Human development is human development and human development is integrated in environmental development too. It's, we're all in this together. It's intersectional, it's interdependent. There is no boundary on development. So what we see going on with right-wing, you know, transphobic state legislatures is not any different than what's going on in, in parliaments and other governments around the world, local and state or, or national governments who are targeting anybody who's different, anybody who is an easy political, an expedient political target, a distraction for whatever political agenda they're pursuing, just usually what happens. I mean, there's so few of us as transgender people, we don't represent any threat except to the notion that you know, male and female are immutable, that this is the boundary that cannot be transgressed. We are basically saying we're here, we're not going away. This is who we are, this is our authentic identity and you're not gonna define it for us anymore. This is who we are. You know, when I first became a political appointee, which I had pursued, it was a phone call out of the blue. <laughs> the human rights campaign put my name forward and forgot to tell me. Um, anyway, I got a call and before I knew it, I'd been nominated to be a, a, you know, a political appointee. And then I, I finally got confirmed, took a long time. But once it was officially announced, I got hundreds of email messages from all over the world, mostly from trans people, but from all people really. And the general message in those emails was essentially down to one word, and that is, wow, <laughs> wow. And the bottom line is that, you know, Chloe, you've got a government that will appoint somebody to a high public office, be, even though she's transgender? I mean, that was beyond their comprehension that that could even be a possibility. 
And although it's flattering to be recognized by the government in such a role, and I took it very seriously, the very thought that we were making a, a new standard, an example to the world to say, you know, just because she's transgender, in fact, because she's transgender, she has something really important to share. You know, it's, and both of those are right. It's not just because she's transgender, which I think is distinctive. It does give you a particular set of insights that really nobody else has. But despite the fact that she's transgender is equally important. It's not an impediment to being competent, creative, productive, and a good citizen. That's what I want to get back. That's what I want to see bring, you know, together in our country and abroad. And it only works when it's done in both places. That's the tension we all have an obligation to address. And until that's addressed, you know, people like me going out to the, into the world saying this and saying that, it's not gonna really matter. And that interplay of international solidarity as well will strengthen us here domestically to also make the changes that are needed so that everyone does have dignity. So yeah. I, I really do appreciate this work. And in closing, as we look forward to the rest of 2021 and beyond, where do you see opportunity and hope? Well, I think it's all, you know, I just mentioned earlier how important it is to the agenda of human dignity that our leadership is committed to that, that it's not fluff, that it's not just rhetoric, that these are genuine commitments. I'm looking forward to seeing Samantha Power formalized and, and start work as the new USAID administrator. Uh, our, you know, she was a former ambassador to the United Nations, an incredibly competent person, um, you know, a remarkable journalist and a Pulitzer Prize winner, on and on and on. But what's most moving for me about her is that she has the moral language. She knows what human rights means. She knows that language well. And there, I've never seen anybody in that leadership position or anything close to that leadership in USAID that is completely at ease and competent using that moral vocabulary. I think there's gonna be profound changes. I mean, that's hope, half hope and half expectation, but I'm, I'm really looking to some really positive normative changes in the way USAID operates. I'm also looking at you know President Biden. I mean, I had the great privilege of going to the West Wing of the White House with seven international LGBTI activists from all over the world when I was vice president at Freedom House. And we met with Vice President Biden. And we sat down in the Roosevelt room and we thought it would just be a walkthrough where he would just shake our hands and go on. And we were told that's what would happen. You know, you know, at, at the most you get 10 minutes. <laughs> he stayed with us 40 minutes. He asked the most incredible questions. He showed such empathy and commitment towards what we were trying to do on LGBTI rights around the world. Wow. I mean, that's the kind of transformational leader that makes me very excited about the future. And last but not least is looking the other direction down the generations are my students. I teach two courses as an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland. And I see students, both undergraduate and graduate, who get it. I mean, they get it about gender equality. They understand what patriarchy means. They understand what feminism is all about. They care deeply about equity and fairness. These are people that, you know, are there's no wool over their eyes. They're going into public policy with a real understanding that human dignity is important. I mean, this is this is stunning. This is really, really powerful. 
so yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful for all three of those reasons. And I'm looking forward to how things unfold in the next few years. It's going to be exciting.